0: I'm Dave Rubin, and joining me today is a rapper, an author, and most importantly, a British women's weightlifting champion. Zuby, welcome to The Rubin Report. How's it going,
1: Dave? Good to be here.
0: It is going well. I I am honored to have a British women's weightlifting champion here. That is, you're the first. First, well, you know, not a lot of people can do what I do, so. Yeah, (laughs) not a lot of people can do it, and for those who don't know what we're talking about, let's roll to the videotape. That is pretty incredible, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. That is 528 pounds.
1: Mm. That you did, yeah. and you
0: identified as a woman as you were doing that
1: lift. I did. I did. Um, yeah. So, man, what can I say? the la- The last six <laughs> months. The last six months have been weird. Tell me about how that all came <laughs> to be. Okay. So, to give people some context on that video. Yeah. Um, on the 26th of February. 2019 I posted for that video on Twitter with a caption just saying I keep hearing about how biological men and women have no uh, I keep hearing about how biological men have no strength advantage over women in 2019 So watch me break the women's deadlift record without trying and I wrote at the bottom PS I identified as a woman while lifting the weight. So don't be a bigot I put it out there like I put a lot of content and tweets out there not yeah. necessarily expecting some sort of huge global response to it and the whole th- the whole thing went nuts. Uh, the video has now got about 1.8 million views. it was covered nationally internationally on all these different programs, all these different pundits, different podcasts it it just blew it just blew the gates wide wide open um, at the time that I tweeted that on Twitter I had 15,000 followers and have now got about 117 as we're recording this so you know yeah. 100, 100k gain largely due to the catalyst of that video which was weird but it seems like it touched on a lot of nerves um, I didn't realize how wide that conversation was happening at the moment so it seems like it was it was timed perfectly I did it just very flippantly without huge foresight as to what was gonna happen, but uh, yeah, it's good to be known for what you do, I guess.
0: Yeah, so (laughs) I I don't wanna go too far off that. So you have a a really interesting family background and where you've moved and grew up and went to college and all those things, We're, we're gonna hit all that, but somebody watching this must be thinking, well, why would someone go ahead and do that unless they're a transphobe, unless they have some sort of irrational fear of trans people. What what
1: point were you trying to make there? there? There's no irrational fear of anybody. I have no discrimination towards anybody nor any group at all. Um, I think people who levy that accusation are actually trying to get away from what the actual point of the video was, which was that we have got this situation that's happening in a lot of, a lot of different countries. I mean, even, I think it might affect the actual Olympics as well now, where there's this strange debate taking place about whether or not um, biological men who identify as women or who are trans women should be competing against biological, natural-born women in various sports. You've seen this happening in everything from MMA to athletics to weightlifting uh, to soccer. All these, all these different sports, mm-hmm. and it's one of those things that's a, a weird debate to me because anyone who's just familiar with basic biology it's it's basic
0: biology yeah yeah it's not it's not
1: about unfair discrimination or any kind of hatred or bigotry towards any group or anything like that it's just simply saying look there's a clear distinct physical advantage here and everyone who kind of exists in the real world is aware of that that's why men and women's sports are divided to begin with and always have been yeah um and when you're seeing this happening i mean in certain sports you've seen people come out there and Crush some of these women's. Yeah, well, pressures. there's all those pictures of the of yeah. the wrestlers. Yeah, you know? yeah, it's it's uh, it's something that has gone just way too far, and I think the ideological aspect and the emotional aspect for some people has sort of just completely taken over the rational rational and sensible side of things. Because if the if the true issue was just having people being able to compete in various sports then there are other ways that you could handle it rather than, that won't affect women's sports in general. Mm-hmm. So what would you saying, do then with transgender athletes? Well, firstly, this is interesting because most people don't actually know this, is that most men's sports divisions are not actually men's sports divisions, they're just open. This is mm-hmm. something I actually learned, learned quite recently. So there's not actually a rule saying this is only for men, it's just that, you know, so whether you're talking about, I think, even things like the, the NBA, the NHL, the mm-hmm. Major League Baseball, they're not actually, there's no rule saying you have to be a man right. to be in the team. It's as as opposed to the WNBA, which is saying we are the Women's a, National Basketball exactly, Association. Exactly. Right. So so you could either, the, to me, the most obvious things would be either you just have an open category and anyone who is not, you know, anyone, man, woman, trans woman, trans man, whatever, everyone, anyone can compete in the men's division as long as they are within the limits and boundaries of those when it comes to performance enhancing drugs and testosterone levels and things like that. That would be uh, an existing solution that's already there. Or simply, if there are enough athletes, I don't know how many you know, transgender male athletes genuinely exist at that professional level, but if there were, you could also just have another, another division and that way you wouldn't be putting women at risk or making things unfair for them Um, and you'd also have anyone who genuinely just wants to be able to compete and play, anyone can compete and play. So I think either of those two solutions would would make more sense. So the reason why I say I think it's more ideologically driven is because rather than doing that, people do wanna shoehorn it into the existing categories despite the fact that there is, that there are large biological differences. There There is an advantage, even if people were to suppress their testosterone levels, there's still an advantage. It would be like, um, maybe a good example would be like a guy who's using uh, steroids for 10 years and then goes off of them. Mm -hmm. They've still got an advantage over a man who's never used steroids ever in their life, regardless of the sport. Right. So,
0: is, is the ultimate irony, of course, that actually by you doing that, because mm. you were just calling out the hypocrisy and nonsense around this and how it's activist-driven rather than reality-driven, let's yeah. say, that you actually were taking what I think would be a true feminist position, really, right? Mm. You were taking the, the more pro-woman
1: position. Do, yeah. do you think that's fair to say? Yeah, I think, I think that's fair to say. Um, It's weird, I think even in the world of feminism, which I'm not a a part of nor a big fan of in its modern day incarnations, there seems to be, this issue seems to be quite a big split that seems to be taking place there. Uh, Because you've got, I guess, I don't know all the terminology, but you have the sort of more gender critical feminists or the more radical feminists who are totally opposed to this and then you have the more liberal feminists who are saying, oh no, well trans women are women, so we need to allow them to come into these spaces, whether those are changing rooms or bathrooms or sports or anything like that, um, regardless of some of the potential consequences. and it's actually kind of interesting to watch from afar and see that split that split taking place there. But with me, I, you know, I, I'm very much about fairness and, uh, and, kind of, and it's one of those things that's very obviously unfair. <laughs> Support for the Rubin Report comes from our friends at Rocket
0: Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Home is so much more than a house, it's your own little slice of heaven. That's why when you find the perfect place for you and your family, getting a mortgage shouldn't get in the way. Imagine how it feels to have an award-winning team by your side through every step of the mortgage process. It's awesome, and it's exactly what you get with Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Their team of mortgage experts is obsessed with finding a better way, which means that their number one goal is to make the home buying process smoother for you. Quicken Loans has helped millions of Americans achieve their dream of home ownership, and when you're ready to purchase the home of your dreams, they can help you too. Their team cares about getting you home. That's why J.D. Power has ranked Quicken Loans highest in customer satisfaction for primary mortgage origination nine years in a row and highest in mortgage servicing six years in a row. When you work with them, you get more than just a loan because Rocket Mortgage is more than just a lender. Get started online at rocketmortgage.com reuben Rubin. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states. NMLS, Consumer access.org, number 3030. For J.D. Power Award information, visit jdpower.com. Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Push button, get mortgage. And now back to the show. Yeah, and were, were so. you shocked sort of when when this was catching fire and yeah. I, and you did a whole bunch of podcasts and, and I think some TV appearances and things, were you shocked the way you got support from certain quarters that maybe you didn't think you were gonna get support and probably got, <laughs> probably, if, I, if I've if i been through this once or twice myself, got hate from a lot of quarters that you didn't think you were gonna get hate?
1: Or, or was it obvious to you at that point? I was fairly, it was fairly obvious to me where the support would come from and where the minor pushback, to be to be honest, the, the pushback was pretty minor, mm-hmm. you know, in, in the grand scheme of things. Uh, when I say minor, I mean millions of people saw that thing. So. The minor could still be several hundred right. or even thousands of people, but 99.9% of people understood it, got that there was no malice. I received tons of messages, actually. I mean, I do have followers who are, who are trans, and I've got fans who are trans, um, and they, funnily enough, none of them took it as some kind of assault or insult or anything. They, they, understood, they understood the point, they understood the humor. Um, and so, I received actually a lot of messages in support from me. From it was probably trans a people. breath
0: of fresh air for them, right? Because yeah. I get emails from trans people when I discuss discuss issues like this, where people say, "Yeah, that that is the reality. I'm trans, but I'm not trying to deny reality. It's an activist driven thing, exactly, a- as you said earlier, as opposed to what what just regular people want, which is just equality. Yeah, That's well, I,
1: it. I think with most things, I think with a lot of groups that I see. I don't think the activists are very representative of the wider population. So, I don't think that trans activists necessarily truly represent trans people. I don't think that, you know, LGBT activists necessarily represent LGBT people. I don't think that black activists necessarily generally represent black people. I don't think that feminism really represents the average woman. You know, it represents their own. Motives and goals and ideas and stuff like that, but I don't think it's truly a reflection of The wider groups and and in most of these cases nobody appointed them to Have this position or this power to speak to them, you but know, they yell a lot so that counts right yeah <laughs> Well, this is, this is this is the problem, you know, so too many people think that just because someone yells a lot or because they're loud that they are the voice of reason or representation, which I think you see this across all these boards and these various intersectional groups, and it's not, it's just not true. You know, you'll have people claiming to be, Black leaders claiming that they speak for all black people, or making it seem like they do, and you're like, you, don't you speak, speak to. for all black people, I think, <laughs> right? You do, Obviously, not yeah, the, that all, 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 all billion billion or so. I mean, yeah, you know, they they all think exactly like me, and we yeah, all, you know, share the same view. Yeah, so I, I don't I don't know. It's it's weird to me. It's just one of those things I've observed over the years, and uh, yeah, it just it it's just what it is, really.
0: All right. So now that we've established that you're a women's deadlift champion and why you are a women's deadlift champion. Let's back up, because your your personal story is, sure. is actually really interesting. You were born in Britain, but you grew up in Saudi Arabia. That's right. about that.
1: Yeah, so um, I was born in the UK. Um, when I was a baby, moved over to the Middle East, Saudi Arabia, my parents used to work over there. So I moved there, our entire family moved over there. Myself, I've got four siblings as well. Uh, so I went to school there, I went to preschool there, kindergarten. I stayed there, I was there kind of all the time pretty much up until I was about 11 years old and then I actually went to the UK for boarding school. So I was still living in Saudi Arabia, but I was back and forth between the two countries from the age of 11 all the way through my sort of middle school and high school years, if I'm thinking of the U.S. equivalent. And then um, also then after I finished school, I went to Oxford University. I studied computer science there for three years. And then it wasn't actually until I was at the end of after i graduated was when i we kind of fully moved back to the uk so and then my family background is originally from nigeria so i've kind of got three different homes in a way and i've had a lot of exposure to three different well more more than more i've been to 30 something countries in total but I've had a lot of exposure and experience in those three different countries and climates and cultures, which I think has shaped my own perspective quite a lot and given me quite a unique view on a whole bunch of things, to be honest with you. Can I ask
0: what kind of work brings a Nigerian-British family from Britain to Saudi
1: yeah, Arabia? Yeah, sure, my, my, uh, my dad's a medical doctor and my uh, mom used to be a journalist, so. So what's it like growing up in Saudi Arabia? Because I think if you just say Saudi Arabia, people, <laughs> people just have
0: some kind of image yeah. in their head, they can't really figure out, because we've, we've talked about it a little bit. Yeah, that's right.
1: Um, <clears throat> so I think it's one of those places where, uh, I guess like like with most countries, depending on, uh, it's, it's hard to say, I can, I can only talk about my own personal sure. experience, because I think uh, lots of other people would have grown up there in different parts and different cities and may have very different experiences to my own, but my personal experience of it, and my family's in general was, Mostly very positive. Um, I really enjoyed growing up there. It was a great place to go to school. Where I grew up So, So what, was, what uh,
0: were the schools like? Were, were you in a school that was with people with different, uh, different international backgrounds? Absolutely. I assume you weren't going to a yeah. generic school, was or like a, a public school or
1: something in Saudi Arabia. Oh, well, we were in a, like an expat community basically. So where we lived was, was a little bit of a bubble. Um, it's actually been weird being here in Los Angeles, because certain parts of Los Angeles look quite a lot the, like where I grew up. Is in that Saudi. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I guess we have because, a little
0: Middle East flair here. Yeah,
1: <laughs> it's hot. Well, I think because they they modeled the they modeled some of those they call them camps. Uh-huh. So they they modeled some of them after some of the uh, suburbs and areas of various cities huh. in the U.S. And so, in terms of just the way the roads look and the way the houses are built and the the trees and the foliage and all that, it's actually really. It's really similar. It looks a lot more like Los Angeles than it looks like the UK. Huh. Um, so where I lived was, to be honest with you, it was a, a little bit of a bubble. So big inter- like international community, um, lots of engineers and doctors and teachers, because and, there aren't that many like jobs that people <laughs> really need to do. There's only certain things that People go out there to work as um, as expats for. Mm-hmm. So where I lived was, yeah, very much its own bubble, but very international. So from the age of two, I was surrounded by people of all you know true 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 diversity, um, people of all races and colors and religions and. Uh, yeah, I just I just grew up with that from the age of preschool. I mean I remember you can look at my preschool photos and it's just you got people from everywhere, all these all these different nationalities, different countries, lots of Americans. Mm-hmm. I was in the American school system. Uh, so I went to boarding school after fifth grade, basically. So I stayed in the American system up until fifth grade and then I switched over to the British system. So um yeah. So, 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 so how,
0: how is it for the expats? Like, for example, you know, everyone, when everyone talks about Saudi Arabia, they always mm. talk about that, that women can't drive, which now okay. I guess is changing a little bit. So, like, your mom couldn't drive there.
1: She could drive within the within the area where we lived. Wow. Within the area where we lived. So you kind of wow. have the the bubble, the expat bubble, and then you've also got the real Saudi. So you'd experience both. So if you wanted to go out shopping, you wanted to go out to the cities and stuff like that, then you'd then be in. Sort of what I call real Saudi, mm-hmm. and the rules and regulations are different. So within within the compound, within the smaller community, um, yeah, women women can drive, and there are less restrictions on clothing and stuff like that. Um, things like alcohol and drugs still 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 a huge no no. Yeah, but um, once you get out into the real Saudi, then that's where you know the the regular rules and regulations sort of apply. So if you're an expat. They, you've 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 got quite a bit of leeway, but you generally you know it's kind of like when in Rome do as the Romans do mm-hmm. so if you're going out to town, for example um whether you're a man or a woman, you dress modestly, you know people are aware that women have to cover up to a degree, but also as a man, you wouldn't be able to go out in a tank top. Uh, men don't wear jewelry. They don't have visible jewelry showing and stuff like that. You wouldn't wear like really short shorts or anything, have your arms exposed, that kind of thing. So that goes for both men and women. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if, for example, if it's Ramadan, even if you're not um, a Muslim or you're not a Saudi native, you still wouldn't go outside eating or drinking in public just out of out of respect for the 99, 99- Percent of other people who are right. fasting. So little things, little things like that. And then um, during the day, if you're out shopping, all the shops five times a day close for a prayer. So they'll they they'll bring down the what do they call the shutters. Uh-huh. They'll, they'll bring. You'll hear the prayer call. You'll hear all the shutters coming down. Everything closes. If you're doing shopping, you have to you know come outside and then wait for twenty minutes. Uh, all the Muslim people will, will go to the mosque and they'll do their prayers and everything. They'll come back, and reopen their shops in half an hour. So it's stuff like that. And then the little other things like the, the weekend being Thursday and Friday, rather than Saturday and Sunday. Mm-hmm. So when I go to school and everything, you'd have school from Saturday to Wednesday, then Thursday and Friday. Is the weekend, so I grew up with Thursday and Friday being the weekend, and I had to come, when I came to the UK. I was like, oh, it's Saturday <laughs> and Sunday here, so yeah, just yeah. little differences like that. But overall, it was a, it was a really good place to grow up, and I'm, I'm happy I grew up there. Um, like I said, give, it has given me a whole different perspective. Saudi's an interesting place because it's one of those countries where very few people have been to, but people tend to have quite strong opinions on, mm. them, um, which is quite rare. Most countries, if someone hasn't been there, they don't really think much about it or know much about it, but in Saudi, I think people always, people are very aware of the sort of negative aspects of it, but I think there are a lot of pros to it as well, and it's, uh, it's just very it's very different. It, it's, to understand it, you kind of have to come from a whole different perspective.
0: Have you been back as an adult? In some ways.
1: No, I haven't since leaving there. I was last there in 2008. So since, since leaving there, I haven't, haven't been back. Um, I would like to visit, sometimes I do miss it, although I don't really know many people who, who are there anymore now. But um, yeah, my, my, my memories of it generally are, are very much positive, which a lot of people tend to be surprised by. I love having cool stuff in my house, but never seem to have time to shop for it. Then
0: I got a box of awesome. No, it's not a box of Star Wars memorabilia, but it is a box of some of the coolest stuff I never knew I needed. A company called Bespoke Post creates customized boxes filled with really neat products, apparel, kitchen gadgets, music and tech gear and much more, all handpicked just for you. To get started, just visit boxofawesome.com and answer some questions to give them a taste of your taste. Each box goes for under 50 bucks, but the gear is worth more than $70. On the first of each month, you'll get an email with your box details. You'll have five days to change colors, sizes, or add extra goods to your box. If you're not feeling it that month, simply skip it. To receive 20% off your first subscription box, go to boxofawesome.com and enter code Ruben at checkout. That's boxofawesome.com, code Ruben for 20% off your first box. Bespoke post themed boxes for guys that give a damn and now back to the show
1: Yeah, but um
0: so then Schooling it. in Britain where mm-hmm. you were born you end up at Oxford that we we met in Oxford you we did at it? the uh, at the Jordan Peterson show Yeah, thank you for the invitation um, that, My pleasure <laughs> um, What what, what do you study at Oxford
1: computer science?
0: Yeah, were you gonna be a A programmer or something? Was that
1: the idea? And then you became a women's deadlift (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to live with that now for the rest of my life. Um, So so I'm really interested in IT and technology in general. So when I was in school and I was deciding what degree to do, I figured that computer science would be a good option for me. I didn't really love it. Um, I'm not really into coding and programming, but I didn't know that until... Uh I was there and I was doing it and everything. So, you know, I I stuck it through. I I got my degree, I graduated and everything. In hindsight, it's possible I would have chosen a different subject just because after doing it, I kind of felt like, okay, I now know that I don't want to go into this field. But, um, you know, university is where I first started rapping. So I started my music. I used to play piano when I was little. I used to do recitals and concerts and stuff like that. And then um, I also played trombone in school band for two years. But then in my sort of early teen and pre-teen years, I kind of just, I wasn't really into music, which is weird that I've ended up becoming a professional musician, because huh. I, wasn't, I wasn't really into music so much, like I, I did my piano stuff, but it wasn't until I went to boarding school and I started listening to a lot more, a lot more rap and hip-hop, and I kind of fell in love with it there. But I'd never tried making my own stuff until I got to university. Who was the rapper that kind of caused the spark for you? Ooh, that's a good question. Not not a single person. Um, I mean, my favorite two my two favorite artists are Tech N9ne and Jay Z. I'm also a big fan of Tupac, Nas, Eminem, a whole bunch of other people. Um, but yeah, I just started rapping when I was when I was 18, when I was in my first year of university. One of my friends, Chris, had a studio in his dorm room, so I used to go in there and i just uh, download beats off of the internet, and we'd record stuff, and I got good at it pretty quickly. I mean, I released my first album after I'd been rapping for nine months. Wow. Yeah, um, so I just put that out there independently. It was a CD called Commercial Underground, so I, I invested like 100 pounds to make a 100 discs, and uh-huh. then I just went around and sold them around my university and everything like that and got really positive feedback, got some good reviews in local papers and music magazines and things like that. And then uh, so that kind of set off the spark as like, oh, If people are willing to pay for my music. This is something that could be more than just a hobby. So I started doing it more, started uh, gigging around locally and in a couple other towns and cities, not too not too far from where where I was in Oxford. And um, yeah, just started started building up my audience. And then I graduated after I graduated, I took one year out and did my music full time for one year. And I released my second album, The Unknown Celebrity. And that was when I just started hitting the streets of the UK and just going out there with, with my CDs and just, just hustling, just going out to different high streets, different town centers, city centers, talking to people, telling people who I am, showing them what I'm doing, playing them my music. And, you know, sold several thousand CDs just traveling around from the Isle of Wight to Glasgow, Swansea to, <laughs> to Norwich, just all, all over the UK. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, just all these different cities. So that's really how I built up my name. And then, um, I got a. I had a job offer, which I deferred for a year after graduating. So I moved to London at that point, and I actually worked uh, in the in the city of London for a while. I was a management consultant, so I did the did the corporate thing for a couple of years whilst juggling my music on the side. And then in 2011, November 2011, I took took the big leap to go and do my music full time, and. Uh, I'm here today, so I haven't uh, I haven't died yet.
0: <laughs> <laughs> this is a little bit like a Forrest Gump adventure. You've done like pretty much like a little bit of everything. That's kind of what it seems like. But let's back up a little bit yeah, to, to Oxford because out of the hundred plus shows that I did with Jordan, the, the Oxford and the Cambridge one, and, and a few others are the ones that really stick out to me because mm. uh, I had been in Oxford a, a few months before, and just the the history there, the appreciation for knowledge and mm-hmm. learning and truth and just the, the architecture and the, the little, you talked about a bubble before, but yeah. like the little bubble that is Oxford that you mm-hmm. could just sort of feel that like Harry Potter magic <laughs> as you're walking down these corridors. And you gave me a, a nice tour through some of that. Um, you must have, d- does everyone there really appreciate the, the level of education that's going on there? I think
1: most people do. And did
0: they did, like? Did you realize how special that that was while you were
1: there? Yeah, definitely. I mean, when I was so when I was in, still in school, when I was doing uh, what we call A levels, so the six form exams that you do prior to going to university, I visited about five or six different universities around the UK. And when I got to Oxford, both the city and the university did stun me. I was like, "Wow!" I'd, I'd never actually been to the city prior to then, and just. Yeah, seeing the architecture, all the various colleges and the buildings, and I, I really just felt like, whoa, this is this is
0: because it kind yeah, of feels like it. a almost like a Hollywood set, right? It like, does, yeah. It's, like a little, it's a little you're bit walking surreal. into Harry Potter or something. That's what it yeah, feels yeah, like, yeah, yeah.
1: It's a, it's a little bit surreal. So that was when I actually decided in that moment I was like, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna apply to here. I'm gonna I'm gonna see if I can get into Oxford. So um, I applied to five different universities. And uh, yeah, I do remember specifically actually getting the <laughs> getting the acceptance letter. I had a ton of interviews there as well. I had six interviews. Which yeah, was how how pretty, hard is it to get into it's Oxford? Hard. It's tough. <laughs> it's, right. it's tough. Most people have two to three interviews. I had two interviews each at three different colleges, um, which was more than anyone else that I know. Most people have two, three at a push. I ended up having six interviews, and those interviews were were. Were pretty crazy. I mean, I remember getting asked questions like, "How many how many sides and vertices does a four dimensional cube have?" That was one of my interview questions. You're gonna make uh, me do math? Yeah, right? I, was, right here. I was told a, a there'd four, be no a math. Four, a four dimensional cube. I assume right. it has. Uh, four? I, didn't, I didn't know. I, I didn't know what a four dimensional cube <laughs> was. But when, when they explained it to me, I was like, yeah, okay, I can three dimensional. Yeah, cube. yeah. <laughs> I was like, 4 dimensional. like, four-dimensional? I, was yeah. like yeah. I, I can answer this for a cube, a normal cube. Yeah." Uh, so yeah, that. And then I remember having to. And the interviews are not just, um, you know, because I was going into a mathematical and computer science field, they really want to see how your, how your brain works. So they give you problems to solve. It's not just, you know, sit down and tell us about your life or give us an, like a job interview. You know, right. Give us an example of a time you demonstrated leadership. It, yeah. wasn't, it wasn't like What's that. What's your it was, one weakness? Yeah, it was like, draw us a graph of Y equals, and you have to stand up there in front of three or four um, dons or tutors right. and you're drawing graphs and doing maths and stuff like that. I feel like if I were thrown into those interviews right now, I'd be like, <laughs> <laughs> like at, at the time, I, I, you know, at the time obviously I was, I was able to do it. But um, yeah, so it is, it is difficult. Um, and Oxford really, I mean, that was the first time, like all arrogance aside, I found school easy. You know, hmm. I found school easy. I, I nailed all of my exams. I got the top mark in all of my GCSEs, all of my A-levels. I kind of cruised through school pretty easily. And then the first exam I ever did in Oxford, I got 14%. <laughs> I remember specifically, I got 14% wow. in the first exam I ever. Wow. So I'd gone from getting 97, 98, 100, 14. I was like, okay, that was, that was humbling. Um, so it's a really interesting place because Everyone is really smart, mm-hmm. and you're surrounded by. I mean, when when you're there, you can kind of forget it because you, you you get used to it, just like you get used to the architecture and how amazing everything looks. You do sometimes forget. Wow, I'm really here with the brains of not just Britain, but the the world. Right, because when you're there as an outsider,
0: it's almost hard to believe that it's still a functioning school. Because you kind of <laughs> because you kind of feel like you're walking into the past, and you're like, oh. People must have learned here 200 years ago, but there's, it's not happening now, is it? But yeah, yeah. it's and I, still I happening. Think,
1: I think I was at the oldest college too. I think my college was founded in 12, I want say the 1200s or something like that. Um, so the, yeah, the amount, of, the amount of history there and the prestige and everything, it, it does, it was cool. It, it, it was cool. I mean, um, I'm, I'm very glad I went there. Like I said, my particular subject I did. I wasn't super duper crazy and passionate into, but I made wonderful friends there who, I'm still friends with to this day. Um, and it was really, it really stretched me. It really it really pushed me in a way that I'd never been mentally pushed before, you know, it just threw me in there at the deep end. And doing something like computer science, I mean, I remember talking to people and uh, some of the other guys on my course, some of them had been coding since they were seven years old. I'd never right. done, I'd never done any coding. And so right. I was like, well, when I get there, I'll learn how to do it. I'll, I was there with people who just, they do this in their free time. They've just been doing this for fun like all the time i've been going to the gym or running around outside <laughs> yeah. playing rugby doing all the various things i do they were just coding and uh so in terms of that they had this you know lots of people there had this sort of huge advantage over me which which pushed me over even harder but um on the other side i think in terms of some of the social aspects and other things like that i think i had an advantage because uh it was, it was pretty geeky.
0: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're a friendly guy. You smile, lot, yeah. so you were good. What's the, uh, or what was, while you were there, the, the political climate like? Because when I went there mm-hmm. the first time, I spoke at the Oxford Union, which I, I still can't believe that they asked me to do, and it was absolutely incredible, and I met so many great young students, and, yeah. and a- hours after my, my talk, I was staying around and chatting with everybody, and they were asking things, and one of the things that I noticed was they were really, really concerned about the way that social justice is starting to leak into the academic fields. Mm-hmm. Were, were you feeling that, as someone doing hard science, yeah. computer science, were you seeing that then? What, what years were you there? I was there
1: 2004 to 2007. Okay, yeah. so. uh, No, it wasn't there at all when I was there, which is one of the reasons why I find what's going on now weird and quite concerning. I think Oxford is still pretty good on not getting so sucked into that as I think some of the universities are. I think Oxford and Cambridge have been a little bit of a bulwark against it, from what I can see. But yeah, certainly in the years when I was there, not a lot of the stuff that is stuff now, a lot of the conversations that are conversations now, it just wasn't it wasn't a it wasn't a thing. Um, maybe once in a while you could see very tiny glimpses of it here and there, but I'd never even if. When I, when I was in university, if someone you even mentioned some of these terms and words to me, if someone said white privilege, if someone said male privilege, if someone even said identity politics, I wouldn't have even known what that meant. Mm-hmm. I, wouldn't, I didn't know what identity politics was until several years after. So a lot of these ideas and concepts which you're now seeing pushed both in academia and in entertainment and in politics and all these different worlds, maybe it was bubbling under the surface a little bit um, but it, it wasn 't there, and also in Oxford, they primarily only do the academic subjects, so there aren't it 's quite limited the amount of subjects that you can study there mm-hmm. so there some of the social sciences like for i don 't think they even do sociology in oxford so so that kind of insulates it at least for a little while yeah, it does no. because the people aren 't even studying the subjects where I think some of this indoctrination takes place if you 're going to Oxford and you 're studying h- history or one of the various sciences, or anything, anything like that, then these ideas don't get a chance to be put into students' brains. Yeah. Whereas, in, but they
0: still are getting in now. I mean, well, they're, they, they they're might, finding they, ways in. Yeah, now. they
1: they might they might be now. I don't know what the situation is like now, but yeah. I can I can confirm that when I was there, lots of these things just were not. They just were not a thing. Yeah. Um, like I said, which is why it's, it's weirder to me when I, when I see what's going on now, and I'm kind of like, huh, that's, that's new. That wasn't, you know, 10, 12 years ago, that wasn't a thing, that wasn't something people were saying, that wasn't a weapon people were using against each other. No, you mean you would've... didn't know that Britain was systemically racist? <laughs> Shouldn't you know
0: that? Shouldn't <laughs> that be obvious? And no.
1: Well, yeah, I, I, I'm one of those evil people who doesn't actually believe that the UK or USA or the Western world in general is as horrible and evil and racist and bigoted and homophobic and sexist as certain people seem to want to think that it is. So This is again where I think my global perspective helps me a lot because mm-hmm. if people want to see a patriarchy, I mean, I, I can I can show <laughs> yeah yeah I can, I can show people what a what a real patriarchy actually looks like. Mm-hmm. So when someone is in the u k or in I don't know here in, in Los Angeles and they're talking about the patriarchy I, I look at them with this confused look on my face kind of what are you what do you even what are you even talking about here yes yeah.
0: are, are you shocked though when you push back on that from certain quarters and then suddenly they almost can erase your lived experience even though they're <laughs> all about the lived experience
1: yeah I don't know i people some people get kind of angry about it, but the thing the thing with me is i've I'm not someone whose views have changed a lot over time. Um, I'm not someone who really ever had a political awakening, or I'm not someone who was formally on 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 one side and and you know really changed my views. Or to, I've kind of always just been where I am yeah. politically, for the most part. How would you describe that? Actually, I I like to call myself a free thinker. If you had to place me on the political spectrum, I'm in the center right libertarian. Quadrant of any sort of political compass test. Yeah, and as far as I'm aware, I've I've always been there. Um, but what seems to just have happened, as we as we've kind of been saying, and I know you've been saying on your show, is that the world has just the world has changed. You know, um, whatever party you're you're looking at. So, I mean, last time I was in the states was just before Obama got elected. I was mm-hmm. in, last time I was in the U.S. was September October 2008. And the Democratic Party then even seemed very, very different to what I'm seeing and hearing now. I mean, I'm in the UK, but of course, I, I see stuff online. I've seen some of the debates and seen the policies and positions people are pushing. And again, I'm like, that's new. Yeah, that, that's I'm like, I'm
0: like that, that's well, Obama basically ran on none of the things. No, that I'm, I'm pretty sure Obama would
1: be a Republican. He. <laughs> <laughs>
0: As I travel around the country, the most frequent question I get is how can I make my political views heard without putting my livelihood at risk? If you've ever wondered this, I've got your answer. Introducing Civics, an easy to use grassroots app that turns every smartphone user into a lobbyist. If you can swipe right or left, you can use Civics. It's that simple to start learning about the legislation that could govern your life. Within the coming weeks, Civics will enable you to sort, filter, like, or dislike all of the bills being considered by. Congress that you care about or that you oppose. You'll also be able to receive notifications as they route through Congress and even crowdfund contributions to politicians based on legislation rather than through political parties, bundlers, lobbyists, or broad special interest groups that will not reflect the specific legislation you value. Passionate about gun laws? There are over a dozen bills going through Congress as we speak that could affect US gun ownership. Wishing the feds would finally legalize cannabis? Well, there are bills in the Senate right now related to THC and CBD products. You can even use the Civics app to easily find the proposed legislation that covers gun rights for medical marijuana users. Special interest groups and billionaires can spend millions to make their voice heard. Now the crowdfunded Civics community gives you a seat at the table. Download Civics in the Apple App Store today and join the nonpartisan Civics community. That's C-I-V-X in the Apple App Store just download the app to get started civics let's crowdfund democracy now and now back to the show
1: (laughs) small steps yeah yeah yeah, yeah. pretty pretty close to i mean in terms of his policies and what he was i mean you can go back and watch the videos where he's talking about um, immigration policy and, and the borders and various issues, and you're kind of like a lot of white supremacy <laughs> stuff coming out of that guy, like, right? He sounds like a Republican here. Yeah. Um, so it's just it's just weird how that has changed. I think in the UK as well. I mean, I don't watch politics super close on the nitty gritty. I'm more interested in the, the bigger ideas. Yeah. But um, you know, even even with the, with the, with the Labour Party and stuff like that, again, it seems to have changed quite a lot from what I remember it being 10 years ago or 15 years ago, and things like that. So when it when it comes to socio political stuff, I feel like I've kind of stayed pretty still and stable, I've become more open about what my views and positions are, I used to just kind of keep them to myself and talk about things privately Mm. and things like that.
0: Well, that was one of the um, things that interested me and you in the first place, however I came across you on Twitter, mm. and I could kind of see, I've seen this with a few people, you suddenly see people that are kind of, they're saying something that's interesting, right? And then suddenly you see people start getting braver and braver with Mm. it, and then suddenly, like what you do now, where you're just putting stuff out there and you're saying, this is me and that's it. And it's like, that's what we need more people to do. Not just public people, we need regular, decent people to be doing that. Yeah,
1: yeah, certainly. I mean, it it just seemed, it was just going so far that I kind of felt like, okay, someone needs to, the people who are saying the crazy stuff and stuff that I think long-term could be quite, well, is divisive and potentially damaging to wider society they're not gonna shut up, yeah. they're, they're really loud, they're really vocal, online, offline, and everything like that. So I and other people who think like me can't just be complicit in our in our silence, Yeah, right? I so, think you said
0: to me you were a little worried about how that was gonna affect the rap career, right?
1: Um, initially a little bit. Um, I, th- I think there's quite a few things that sort of protect me in that regard, one of them being the fact that I'm independent and I always have been. I've made my own career and built everything I've done on my own terms. I've never been signed to a label or beholden to anybody in the music industry or whatever. So I think if, if someone doesn't create you, then they can't destroy you, right? Mm-hmm. If they didn't give you the platform, they can't, they can't take it away from you because I've, I've got my own platform. You're probably Um, not gonna fire yourself, that's what you're telling me? No, certainly not, (laughs) I don't plan to. And then in in terms of even my, my music itself, it's always been based on authenticity and being true to myself and just being honest and whatnot and not chasing trends. So even in terms of my fans, I mean, I had some people be like, oh, are you worried about if you talk about this or that, that you might lose certain fans of your music? And no, I'm not, because my fans, firstly, but lots of them aren't interested in politics at all. So that's, I've, almost, I've got sort of two quite different audiences. So mm-hmm. over the last two years, I've kind of built a more politically social issue charged audience, mm-hmm. but I've also got my music audience. There's, there is an overlap, but some of them are quite different. So the people coming to see me perform at a show, typically they're just there to, because they like the music, they like the songs. Um, and then I don't know if I'm if I'm doing a talk or I'm doing or a, a show or something like this or an interview, that tends to be more of the people who might you know not maybe not follow my music quite as closely but are interested in the ideas and like the way that I think and like the way I art- articulate myself and whatnot. So I've just been like you know what that is that's all Zooby. So all I'm doing is I'm showing the world a little bit more and more of me. So mm-hmm. you've you've been getting the music for over a decade but now this is what else is going on in my mind and this is what I think about this, this is what I think about that. There's lots of things that I don't have a super strong opinion on. Um, and I try not to talk about things where I haven't thought about my own idea or researched certain things enough because I don't want to just say something for the sake of it and look silly. If I'm gonna say something, I, I quite like being right.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so,
1: so if I'm gonna yeah. say something, I want to be able to say it and have, I've thought about the best arguments against my own position. and really weighed it up, and then I'm happy to have a conversation about it or put something out there that people can challenge me on, and I'm not going to just be like, oh, okay, either buckle or just not know what I'm talking about and expose myself as someone who's not too wise.
0: Right. I know you said that you don't like getting caught in sort of the nitty-gritty of politics, and neither do I. I would much rather talk about the ideas behind them, but Mm -hmm. you know, we all kind of get lost in that a little bit. But one of the things I noticed in the last year as I traveled to all these countries, was how American politics and the American sort of culture war really seems to reign supreme almost in every country. That, you know, when I remember very specifically when we were in, uh, Uh, Ireland, when we were in Dublin, which I think was right after I saw you, that it was during the whole Brett Kavanaugh hearings, and everyone there was asking me about it. Now, Mm. obviously he has Irish heritage, so maybe it had a little more interest there, but I thought, this is crazy. I'm in a country across the world, and they're obsessing over one of the Supreme Court nominees for the United States, Mm. uh, and that just seemed so crazy to me. Do you think that, that the U.S. has sort of exported all of our... Political kind of madness, well, uh, t- th- to you guys and, and throughout Europe.
1: Well, there's something um, I think I said this in my interview with Candace Owens. There's a, a phrase I often use that when the U.S. sneezes, the U.K. catches a cold, <laughs> and I think that goes beyond just the U.K. I mean, the the U.S. is a I mean, it's a, it's a superpower. It's a, it's a world leader in a lot of different ways. People look up to the USA, whether they know it or not. I
0: thought they hate us. I thought everyone hates us and thinks we're stupid and we're bad and evil. You mean people still like
1: us? As far as I know, uh, even even people who claim to not, they yeah. still look to the US <laughs> for, you know, whether you're talking about culture, I mean, this is where, we're literally where Hollywood is and where the, the movies are coming from and you've got the president of the USA who whoever that person is at a given time is probably the most powerful person in the world and possibly the most famous person in the world. Um, besides India and China, you've got the biggest population in the entire world, biggest population by a country mile in the Western world. And it's where a lot of people are trying to trying to come to, where a lot of ideas and whatnot permeates from, whether or not people are conscious of it. And then with the way the political climate has been, certainly since probably about 2015 or so, is it's become, I often compare it to WWE, right? It's, <laughs> It, it's just, like a lot of people ask me why I don't talk that much about British politics, and I'm like, because it's boring. <laughs> like, when, I, when I see the stuff that's going on in the US, I'm just like, this is just, it's not, all not just Not to go- say you guys
0: don't have your own problems oh, there. There. There, I mean, there are
1: certainly some problems there, but yeah. the the personalities and the stuff that goes on, like some of it probably is not to... Um, it's probably, it's probably not good you know, in a way. Yeah. The way that it's become this sort of form of entertainment and it's like, oh, who tweeted what or who said what or whatever. But is, for better or worse, it is quite entertaining. I mean, you can't follow Trump on Twitter and not occasionally. Even whether, whether you like him, dislike him, ambivalent. I think ambivalence is quite rare. But, <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Like some of the stuff on there, like when he put the, the Trump Tower on Greenland, And said, "Don't worry, I'm not. I don't know. You would have been off the grid." Well, I was off the grid when I did did my comeback show. Glenn
0: Beck presented a few things to me that he said. He said, "Are these true or false?" And one of them was the Greenland thing, and then that Trump said this thing about uh, bombing the hurricane. And, and it's like, you can't even tell what's true or false anymore, yeah, you know, because yeah. because even an offhanded, I said to Glenn, I was like, well, the offhanded comment, Trump probably did say, yeah, let's bomb the hurricane, because that sounds right, but it also sounds completely made up, <laughs> and that is
1: sort of the weird yeah. world that we find ourselves yeah, in. Yeah, I days. mean, I think that, I think we live in a time where, this is why comedy is so so important, because I think we live in a time where, for a lot of various reasons, people are losing their sense of humor, in a way. And with me, you know, sometimes someone will hear me chuckle or laugh at this, oh, you shouldn't laugh at that, that's not funny, and I'm like, no, it is funny. It is funny, if you have a golden Trump tower on Greenland and he's saying, look, don't worry, I'm not gonna do this to Greenland, you don't, that's fine. (laughs) Yeah, that's just a sense of humor, and even if you do find, even if someone does find some of the whole process or situation, frustrating or annoying or what I mean, what better way to deal with something than just be able to laugh at it. You know, when the time comes to go and vote, vote for whoever you think is the right person. If you like Trump, go vote for Trump. If you don't like Trump, go vote for whoever you think is going to do a better job. If he's as terrible as you're saying he is, it shouldn't be that hard to find somebody who you think will do a better job. But ultimately, your success or your failure is not gonna have anything to do with the government unless you get some sort of huge tyrannical regime that's really, really cracking down on people's freedoms and their ability to do things, whether your life is great or your life sucks, normally it's not gonna have anything to do with the government or politics, let alone any individual politician. So if you're somebody who for the past two and a half years has been complaining about, oh, Trump has ruined the US or Trump has ruined my life or whatever, (laughs) You know, I mean, I had some people who... You're who,
0: speaking my language, man. Yeah. Finish that thought. Bring that
1: one home. Because I think that's
0: it right there. If you're yeah. saying this guy and this government yeah. is evil, it's not about replace, It's not about just getting your guy in in a, in a more powerful government. Mm. It's about perhaps taking a little bit of that power back. Maybe yeah. that's the easier way to do it, yeah. the better and way to do look, it. Look,
1: I mean, everyone is... You're going to succeed or you're going to fail largely off of your own terms. It, this is the thing. This is a, a blind spot of a lot of people who are fortunate enough to have been born and grow up in a country like the USA or the UK, especially if they haven't traveled mm-hmm. a lot, is that you, people do not understand just how good they have it. Even someone who, by American standards, is not up, up at the top, on a global level, you're st- people wanna talk about the 1%, you're still, I think, I think to be in the 1%, I, was, I looked this up, I think if you earn over $31,000 a year, then in terms of income, you're in the global one the, percent. The global you're in the global one percent with mm-hmm. an income of $31,000. Mm-hmm. And then once you factor in opportunity and healthcare and life expectancy and just opportunity, I mean, most people in the world would bite your hand off to be living in a council estate in the UK or in a hood in, the US. Everyone's and said, still trying to come here, right? Yeah, yeah. We're not this, locking people in. Yeah, absolutely. So this isn't saying that there are no problems in these individual countries and, and certain cities. Of, of course there are. Um, but I just think that in 2019, what a lot of people are just missing is a sense of gratitude. Gratitude and perspective, I think, are the two things that a lot of people are missing. When you're seeing everybody just angry and shouting and complaining and saying, this is horrible and this is terrible. And I'm like, what are you comparing things to?
0: Hello, good people of the internet. It's me, Dave Rubin, with an important message. My first book is now available for pre-sale. so let me tell you a little bit about it. Outrage mobs, online censorship, activists masquerading as journalists, they're all waging war against the last free thinkers in the world. America and the West in general is in the midst of an identity crisis that's headed towards an outright revolution. The progressive left, once advocates of free expression and individual rights, now undermine these values at every turn. This uncomfortable truth has turned moderates and true liberals into a politically homeless class. My new book titled Don't Burn This Book is both an explanation of the current political upheaval and your guide to surviving it. Don't Burn This Book is available right now for pre-order on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and anywhere else you get your books. Go to don'tburnthisbook.com and make sure you're one of the first to get a copy. Don't Burn This Book empowers you with the time-tested and common-sense principles that can turn the tide against authoritarians on both sides in this increasingly polarized world. This book is a rallying cry for anyone who wants to live freely which is quickly becoming the most radical belief you could have. That's don'tburnthisbook.com. And now back to the show. What, what do you think that says about the human condition, maybe, or the way the internet, the way we can't really understand the way the internet is changing us? Mm. Because obviously the internet has done incredible things and connected us. And, w- w- you know, we met through Twitter, yeah. the, the evil Twitter, right? <laughs> so, like, there's all of this incredible stuff. People are watching this on the internet. That's all. Spectacular and amazing and mind-blowing yeah. from only 20 years ago, and yet on the other hand, then it keeps people in this odd paralysis or this this state of uh, lack of gratitude or lack mm. of understanding how good it is in in a lot of
1: these places in the West. Yeah. Well, I think we used to think that the problem was lack of access to information, and I think that the internet has proven that that's not the <laughs> that's not <laughs> the issue. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I just think it's uh, I think it's. Wow, I think it's actually a lot of things. I think it's a lot of things. I think it's a lack of understanding of history and knowing how good stuff is in 2019 compared to prior decades. I mean, it wasn't so long ago that we did really live in, you know, there were virulent amounts of racism and homophobia and sexism and bigotry and stuff enshrined in law, which says, okay, this group can do that. This group cannot do that. This people can do that. And and in the for, West that has basically been obliterated. That, yeah. And that's, yeah, and that's, and that's incredible. I mean, if you think of the thousand on a thousand, several thousand year perspective, you know, 200 years ago, less than 200 years ago, people could own slaves like that existed for thousands, that institution existed for thousands of years that on a grand scheme of things, you know, and you look at poverty levels and what people have access to and things like that. I mean, a poor person now or, you know, relatively poor lives better than royalty not so long ago, has a higher life expectancy, has better healthcare, things like that. And I think part of it is, part of the lack of gratitude is people not understanding that history and then also not people not having a good global perspective of how billions of people around the world actually live and what they're going through and what they deal with. I mean, I, I always feel really grateful, for example, when I, you know, when I do go back to Nigeria and I'm going through certain parts of the country or you're in certain areas or certain villages and whatever and you're just seeing how people are living and how millions and hundreds of millions of people, billions of people are, are living and whatnot. And you can't go there as someone who lives in, in the UK or, or lives in the US and is, is you know, doing relatively well. You can't go there and not just have a perspective shift of being like, wow, like I need to stop. I need to stop complaining about everything because there are a lot of people here. Almost everybody here would very gladly swap over with me. So whatever I think is going wrong in the UK or whatever I think is silly or whatever, yeah, good to talk about it. But ultimately, stuff works really well. So basically, the the people
0: on the right should be funding, they should be crowdfunding (laughs) trips, really, to get like the, the truly privileged, lefties of America to, to go to some of these places and realize just for, I mean, it, w- it wouldn't take that long. No, it's, uh, it's not a bad just idea. To see, just to see the difference of, of how good it is. Yeah, it's not a bad idea.
1: And then, you know, so I think it's that. I do also think a factor is um, the, I think, lots of the ideologies that we're talking about now, the goal is to create problems where they don't exist, really. So you'll have you'll now have people trying to find you know people are like looking in every nook and cranny for they're trying to find the hidden racism or trying to find the hidden sexism and it's like if you have to go looking for it okay. and start inventing new concepts to even find it so for example you'll hear people say things like America or the UK oh it's it's just as racist as it ever was but it's just different now and i'm like that's like that's a stupid statement that's a stupid statement like no, no one is saying that these things completely 100% do not exist in anybody's heart or brain. Of, yeah. course, of course they do, yeah. you, you get people who are bigoted, but in terms of the society as, as a whole or the, the average person, I mean, I don't know how anyone in their right mind could say that the US is more racist now than it was 100 years ago or 50 years ago or, or 30 years ago. Or it's more—it's more homophobic now. I mean, you didn't get
0: hate-crammed as you were walking here in LA. No, no, you,
1: you've I'm, been okay out there on the streets. <laughs> I'm being dead serious. <laughs> I had some—I had a few people saying that I should be v- careful of visiting the U.S. now that Trump is president. I mean, that really, people said that, and yeah. I was just like, "You really think that it's like stop watching whatever, you, whatever yeah. you're watching? Yeah, I'm like, yeah, yeah. stop because no, it's just not—it's not true. It's it'll be fine. Like I'm, you know, or as people saying, yeah, okay, you know, if you're a black guy, and you're going to the states. Like, you know, gotta be careful. Like, you know, don't don't interact with the cops or this. I'm, I'm kind of like, man. I There's a Starbucks about a mile away from you. You want to go over there and, and
0: see what yeah. happens? Yeah.
1: Uh, it's yeah. It's it's just it's strange. It is it is strange. But yeah, I think lack of perspective, lack of gratitude, whatever whatever sources those things stem from, those are really what poison people's brains. And I think it's I think it's a shame because I think that's what's really disempowering to people as well. I'm very much big on, you know, personal responsibility and I do believe that if you live in a country with great opportunity everyone starts at different levels. Certainly some people have advantages and disadvantages of all sorts. So your starting point is not is not determined by you, right? The the universe, God, whatever the situation is, that gives you your your starting point. You don't choose your parents, you don't choose your country of birth, your city of birth, socioeconomic status, anything like that. And that's good to understand, but over the course of an entire lifetime, over the course of many decades, I do think that where you end up is, for the most part, Mm -hmm. up to you. It's not up to the system. It's not up to the government. It's not up to any politician or party. You are the person who's going to- And how sad it would be if it was, right? Yeah, Yeah, it is sad. So I think most people sort of inherently know this too, but they still are continually looking for that thing above them That person or, oh, if only we can get this guy into office, then all of our problems will be, that person doesn't exist. That policy doesn't exist. That party doesn't exist. You can vote for ones that you think more align with your your views and your policies and things like that. But there's nothing that's going to happen that's going to fundamentally turn you from a, someone who's failing, someone who's super successful. I mean, yeah. that's, that's really a mindset shift. That's something that you've got to take on yourself.
0: It's interesting that you described it as something above them because I don't know what your personal religious beliefs are, but I, I know how much Jordan Peterson has influenced you mm. and obviously uh, me as well. And that is one of the things he shifted me on, this idea that there has to be something above you that, that is sort of real and empirical. Otherwise, you'll always be looking for it in man. And that, yeah. that has sort of led to where we're at now with so many of these movements, because they think they can fix man, yeah, and absolutely. and perhaps man can't be fixed.
1: Yeah. Well, I th- I think in terms of my own views, I'm a I'm a Christian. I'm very I'm very open about that. Always have been raised in a Christian family. Whole family's Christian. Um, and one thing I'm noticing, which I think is interesting, is a lot of people who are atheist or agnostic. I'm finding who have been embroiled in some of this to a degree. Not everybody, but I think that a lot of people are. One, some of them are actually starting to believe in God and become more religious, but even those who are not, I think, are starting to better understand some of the benefits Mm -hmm. of religion and sort of seeing what can take place in its absence. Because I do believe, I don't know how well this has been studied, I do believe that people have kind of what I call a religious core. So everybody, it's natural as an adult as you get older to contemplate the meaning of life, or wonder what the ultimate power is, wonder, why, wonder how we all got here, why we all are here, um, wanna know what the ideal is, where does morality come from, all, all these ideas. People wanna have community, people wanna be a part of something. And that's, to me, that's just inherent in human nature. So for some people who are religious, the religion solves and answers mm-hmm. a, lot of, a lot of those things. Whereas I think for somebody who is not um, something else, normally or often—I mean, I may not say say normally, but often—will fill that gap. Yeah. Well, that, that's way, why. That's why form. Pete Boghossian
0: he talks about this postmodernism as a secular yeah. religion, yeah, which nice. makes so much sense, and this is, he's an atheist, I mean, he wrote yeah. a book called The Manual for Creating yeah. <laughs> Atheists, so that this is not something that he wants to see, where yeah. where atheism maybe has a an end of the road that isn't exactly what they want it to be, yeah. but he describes that as a secular religion, and I think a lot of atheists, because I get this, I mean, I get a lot of fan mail about mm. this, where atheists are like, Peterson often was the guy that kind of showed them that okay. that, the, that the road kind of ends of secularism if it's unhinged from something real before that that you're going to end up in this in this you know competing intersectional
1: mess. Mm. Well, I, I don't think it's an accident that I mean even in the 20th century, I don't think it's an accident that the big scary totalitarian fascist regimes made a significant effort to root religion. Out of people and out of society before they implemented their own structures and ideologies, because religion if you 've got something that's already in that hole, then I do personally believe it. of course religion can be used for it can be used for malice, it can be misused for evil and whatever um, but I think in its I think a lot of people have this sort of utopian idea that if you could root that out, then everyone would kind of get along and mm-hmm. stop fighting over what, and I truly don't believe that. I think on an individual basis, fine. You know, if someone if someone can be moral and, and rational and have their own thoughts and ideas and whatever that is complete in absence of any belief in God or religion or whatever, then t- absolutely, totally fine. When you take hundreds of millions of people or billions of people and you root that out, I this might be the pessimist in me, but I don't believe that, I don't, I don't think, that space won't stay empty. Yeah. Something else, better or worse, will come in there and fill that hole. It could be this weird intersectional religion, it could be some kind of very heavy political ideology or belief which basically turns some sort of leader into a god. Mm-hmm um it could or, be drugs or addiction it, it or, can be, or yeah, yeah. it can be yeah it can be it could be drugs it can because people want to find something else cuz pe- ultimately people think well you know we're we're, we're just here there's got to be some meaning or purpose or maybe some other dimension i mean you, you it's it's like when you get people who say you know i'm not religious but i'm i'm spiritual or, and you know they're searching maybe they're using psychedelic drugs to find to enter some other plane or they're meditating or whatever and then which which is which is fine, but um, to me it's it's very much a parallel. It's like you're trying to create something new, like a new or an alternative version, which has some of the ideas and some of the principles, but mm-hmm. misses the sort of aspect of a, of a deity or something super supernatural. But um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I'm like I'm not I'm not here making an argument for religion. Sure. I'm, I'm just more saying that. Well it's interesting cuz you're
0: you're in America I, mean, I think it's a very american view that that you're laying out there because that's the view of the founders right mm. they said these are god-given rights we didn't give you these rights but at the same time what did they say you have freedom of religion yeah. and freedom from religion yeah, yeah so it's a really beautiful thing that these rights came from something else before us we're mm. not handing them to you and there's a there's a real freedom in that
1: yeah definitely yeah. and I, another one i mean Just on a more pragmatic level, again, this is not an argument in favor of for religion, but I do also think that there's a danger if a whole society loses that, and another one does not. (laughs) I think that that opens them up for a potential takeover, in the lack lack of a better sense. Right? I think if you've got if you can have hundreds of millions of people who are united around this idea or belief system, and then you've got people who are kind of splintered off and siloed and isolated and they don't have anything that's really, they feel anyway, is uniting them as a community or whatnot. I do think that poses uh, as a, a threat to them because there's no there's, there's nothing competing to protect against that. So I think, on, on again, on a wider, longer term span, I do think that's something that's a, a potential risk. Some people might say, okay, well, whatever, that doesn't matter, but Those are my personal, that's my personal thought on it. It is something I've I've thought about. It is something I've thought about quite a lot. Um, And again, you know, having grown up in a country like Saudi Arabia, which is 99.99% Islamic and everybody essentially believes in God and everybody follows the same religion and they've got very strict rules on making sure things stay that way, right? There's zero churches there, Mm -hmm. zero synagogues. You can only build mosques. Um, and so, and you know they're they're very strict and structured in the way that they they do certain things. Some people might not like that, but again, from their own perspective, if I use empathy to kind of put myself in their shoes, it's like okay, I get what I can get, what you're doing here, and why you may be doing this. So even if people in the Western world don't like it, or they may think that it's backwards or that it's it's not correct and whatnot, you can understand. I think if you've got a high degree of empathy, you can understand where some of that thinking sort of comes from. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So you're saying that perhaps having a little bit of the traditional sense and also a little bit of free thinking might be yeah. the, the way to do it. Yeah. I think, Pretty I, crazy, man. I, th-
1: I think you can reach a, you can reach a happy, happy medium, you know? Um, you're always gonna have a balance between uh, liberty and on the other side, let's see, If you give people absolute liberty and freedom, then that has consequences. Um, I say this from someone who's pretty libertarian and generally thinks people should be able to do what they want as long as it's not harming, killing or taking from other people. Mm -hmm. Um, But you need some, if you want that to function, you need some kind of fabric over it so that people do behave in a way that's not massively destructive to themselves or to others um and then you've got the opposite where you've got a country like the one I one I grew up in where it's you know, super super duper strict you know in some things there's plenty of things that I think are way too strict and which I personally don't believe in or or sub- subscribe to um, but stuff is very ordered and everyone knows how things kind of work and there there are problems that you get in the west that you don't really get there or to, to far lesser degrees just because people are you know things things are so much more stringent and structured and repercussions for certain things are way more serious i mean for example the death penalty for de- dealing drugs um which yeah I can totally understand someone thinking that's that's way too hardcore but you know, you look at some of the problems, some of the biggest problems in the U.S. and the U.K. are drug-related yeah. or alcohol-related. I think there's a happy and medium here. I think, yeah, yeah. exactly. This is, this is what I always say yeah. to people: it's maybe, like, maybe I think an unhappy happy, medium. Yeah, sure. that's yeah. what I always say. I think there's a happy medium. I don't think you need to go all the way that way. But if you're going to go all the way that way in terms of legality, you need something that it's like, okay, maybe people should be allowed to do some of these things. They shouldn't necessarily have a law saying you can't do that, you can't do that, you can't do that. Can't do that. Punishment, punishment, punishment. But you also want people to, I, I don't know. Like this, this is again, this is what I think like religion has done in the past, and still still continues too. So it's like, okay, it's not illegal mm-hmm. to do all of these things. You're not going to get punished, but people know, okay, well, I'm going to behave in this certain way because that's what pleases God and my family and wider society and whatnot. If I don't do these things and whatnot, so. I don't know. I don't have all the answers. Yeah, but, uh, it's interesting. Oh, you don't have all the answers, <laughs> <laughs> I guess forget some of these other questions.
0: Uh, my last question, because you are a Brit legally, I have to ask you uh, what's going to happen with Brexit.
1: Oh gosh, I don't know, but they need to just make it happen. Really, um, I, I take I take an unpopular view on this in that I've never believed the dooms the doomsday predictions on either side. I'm not a believer that if the UK were to stay in the EU, that it would, everything would go horribly wrong. I'm also not of the opinion that if the UK leaves the EU, things will go horribly wrong. I think the UK in the long term, Britain will be fine either way. Um, Now that I think that the vote has happened and majority of people voted to leave, I think that that needs to be honored. I think that that needs to happen. I don't know all the details of the best way to formulate a deal or to just pull out with no deal or anything like that but I think that now people have voted, um, it's important that that is upheld. I don't really like this idea that, of there being a vote, a Democratic vote, and then people start contesting because they don't like the, they don't like the result.
0: Yeah, well, That's it just strikes not. me as a, as a true uh, firewall for the rest of the West. Like, mm-hmm. can a free Western democracy have a vote and then the powers that be just decide not to allow that vote? Yeah. So if it doesn't happen, regardless of whether you want it to happen or not, mm-hmm. the people voted away a certain way. Yeah. And what would you be signaling to all of the other Western leaders who would love to start ignoring what the people say. You'd be yeah. signaling, ah, they got away with it in England of all places, mm-hmm. so what's next? So, yeah,
1: no, I, I, think, I think they need to honor it and just, I'm bored of it. Yeah. <laughs> 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 honestly, honestly I'm, I'm bored of it. That's what people ask me, what do you think of Brexit? I'm like, I'm bored. Just make it, just get it done. I don't know all the processes, but that's what that's what those. That's what your jobs are. That's why yeah. you were, that's what you were voted for. So go well, you
0: bounced it. around enough. So if it gets really
1: if it gets really wacky over there,
0: we, we could use you here. In the okay, cool. that'll be just fine. You can join us in our racist oh, patriarchy. <laughs> I have a feeling we're going to do this again, my friend. Awesome, man. All right, it was really it, it was a pleasure. And for more on Zuby, you can follow him on Twitter at Zuby Music.